Is your money not sure what to do with itself right now? At Ally, they'll help it save for the future with their smart savings tools. Bucket your money for the things that matter most. Analyze your spending and save automatically. All on top of a competitive rate. For all things money, you deserve an Ally. Visit ally.com slash savings for more info. Ally, do it right. Ally Bank, member FDIC. Impactful stories from the biggest names in the game. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Now, here's Jeremy Schaaf. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with the author of a new book about the 1932 Major League Baseball season. But first, we start with someone who was playing Major League Baseball, not quite in 1932, but more than half a century ago. He is one of the 50 or so still living men who played in the Negro Leagues. And we are honored now to be joined by Dennis Biddle and his wife, Patrice. Guys, thank you for being with us. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Dennis, I, I understand today happens to be your 85th birthday. Patrice, what do you have planned for Dennis? Uh, we are kind of staying. COVID has ruined all those plans. So we're enjoying our time with a good movie and a, a nice cake and some good food. Well, that sounds like a plan. Definitely. Dennis, uh, um, you're 85 as of today. You played in the Negro Leagues in the 1950s, uh, half a decade after Jackie Robinson broke the color line in Major League Baseball. What, what were the Negro Leagues like at that point as they were, they were frankly fading away? Well, at that point, the Negro League, as I can uh, reminisce back, was more or less a training, game, training ground for the Major League. Uh, you know, uh, Brent Rickey, uh, this was his um, major, this was one of his long-range goals, you know, to use the Negro League as a minor league system for the major league. And that's what it really was without that credibility. So as I look back, the men that was training us were men who had, had made this history in the Negro Baseball League. And I'm grateful to be able to... Uh, I've been a part of that. This is the year in which we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the establishment of Negro League Baseball. Um, but we mentioned the pandemic. Uh, some of the celebrations that were planned are not taking place. Uh, how, how are you, how are you trying to, uh, communicate the message of the importance of the history of the Negro Leagues? against the backdrop now of the pandemic, Dennis? Well, um, my wife is playing a big part of this, and I really appreciate it. But I want to thank the Milwaukee Brewers because uh, for the past 25 years, they have helped me uh, to bring that to the forefront because of uh, every year we have a, uh, the Brewers honor players from the Negro Baseball League and a at a game that they have uh, uh, and during that time. And uh, this year, because of the virus, we, were, we will not be able to have that. And this being the 100th anniversary kind of 
uh, we had to do something. So my wife felt that she had to do something about it, and she's doing a great job about it. But we're having a virtual tribute. The day that we would normally have had the celebration with the Brewers was scheduled for July 24th of this year. Um, usually, in conjunction with the Brewers, we will host a, an event, um, a community event. And so, and it would be the following day. And so we're just going to follow lead with what we've normally or traditionally done. And we're going to have a virtual tribute um, uh, with the players being interviewed by one of the radio personalities here in Milwaukee. Um, and we'll probably get some, we're hoping to get some other uh, players to weigh in on this tribute. But so far we've gotten some uh, major league players. I'm, Blue Moon Odom is one of them, and, and maybe uh, Johnny Rogers from the NFL, and some other players to weigh in on the significance of the history um, and and how it contributed to their success. We're talking with Patrice and Dennis Biddle about baseball in the Negro Leagues. Uh, of course, Jackie Robinson broke the color line in 1947. He had played for the Kansas City Monarchs. Uh, by the early 1950s, when Dennis Biddle came to the Negro Leagues as a 17-year-old pitcher, uh, the leagues were losing their uh, reason for being as baseball was becoming more fully integrated. But, of course, Dennis, baseball wouldn't be truly integrated Um it wouldn't be more wide. There wouldn't be more widespread integration for a number of decades. Some teams didn't have black players until the late fifties. So, um, so, so, why did, um, as you said, there were, there were hopes that the Negro leagues could be a training ground for Major League Baseball, the way that um, the minor leagues were. But uh, what was it like being in professional baseball in the nineteen fifties as only some teams were embracing integration. You know, um, players like Hank Aaron, Ernie Banks, Willie May, we all were in the Negro League during that time. And, and this is how we got to the Major League, through through the Negro League. And uh, a lot of other players went to the Minor League. And, and I just, you know, when I look back, uh, I have to say it was like it was a training ground because the players, the managers and the owners of the teams, most of them have been players in the Negro Baseball League. And I don't know if they were getting uh, paid uh, from the major league for preparing us, but uh, they were uh, very interested in us taking this legacy on and, and at the same time preparing us for the major league, keeping the Negro League alive. Patrice. As I said, uh, I think the best estimates are that there are about 50 or so living veterans of the Negro Leagues. How does, how does baseball as an industry, an institution treat them? You know, it's interesting that you would ask that question because my experiences, uh, from what I gather with having been with my husband for the past few years has been very disappointing that, first of all, a lot of people don't even recognize the fact that there are living players. That's the first. Uh, but but even with that, I don't see the widespread um, acknowledgement, um, you know, 
paying homage, the, the honoring, you know, giving them, you know, because it, it, it almost appears to me that if they weren't considered among the greats, the Satchel Page and, and the Hank Aaron, so the names weren't recognized, then they don't get the same level of validity or, or, or um, uh, recognition or dedication. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's a, an atrocity, I think. I, I would even use that word for the simple fact that they, too, contributed and made the sacrifices and had to endure, uh, endure, I'm sorry, the racist, racism and, and, and the lack of opportunities because of the skin of their color. So I think they contribute greatly to the America greatest pastime, but yet they're not given their due diligence. And I think it's a sad situation. And, and Dennis, it's, it's your hope. I know, um, and the hope of others that baseball will step up and, and do more. Uh, for the players of your generation from the Negro Leagues? Yes. Uh, I, I, the major leagues have done some, have given us some help. Some of the players did and are getting a major league pension because of, you know, they had to have played uh, four years or more in the Negro League to qualify. Most of the players that are living now, like I told you in the beginning, we went, we were going through a training process for the major league. And a lot of these players didn't play but one or two years or three years. And they, they were going either to the major league or too old to play, uh, uh, got hurt uh, and missed out. So uh, the players that are living now, not uh, most of them are not getting what they, the other players that played four or five years in the league are getting. And that's what the last 25 years is what I've been doing, thanks to the Major League, thanks to all of the organizations that helped me uh, get some help to those players be before they – and Bud Sealy played a, a, a very important part when he was in Major League, helping us. And uh, I just wish that something would happen for the rest of these players. And some of them live in the 80s and 90s, got – no kind of recognition other than just uh, they played in the Negro baseball league. And this is what I'm hoping that would happen. We would get some kind of recognition. They will, and not before they all leave this world. We have about 30 or 40 players that are still living, and most of them in their 80s and 90s. Well, Dennis, we want to, uh, we want to wish you again a happy birthday, uh, a happy 85th. Uh, Patrice, thank you as well for joining us and for continuing to share the history and your memories of the Negro Leagues. For more information, you can go to yesterdaysnegroleague.com, set up by Yesterday's Negro League Baseball Players Foundation, celebrating 100 years of greatness committed to the preservation, dedication, and education of Negro League Baseball. Dennis, thank you so much. Patrice, thank you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here we are in late June, and of course there is still no Major League Baseball, although now it looks like maybe there will be. Maybe it's more likely there will be than there won't be. In the meantime, we can talk about baseball history all day long with our next guest. His new book is The Big 50, The Men and Moments of that made the New York Yankees, and he's been covering the Yankees 
man, for a long time. Peter Body of the New York Post. Peter, thank you for being with us. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Peter, before we get to the book, um, the latest news is there will be baseball. We're speaking here on Wednesday, June 24th at approximately 2.48 Eastern Daylight Savings Time. What are your thoughts? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I mean, as we've kind of ridden this roller coaster now for these, le- for these last several weeks uh, with the um, – with you know, with with the the, the whole labor situation, um, there were times where I thought we were definitely going to uh, get an agreement done, and then there were times where I thought they weren't. Um, so now, I mean, obviously, it's encouraging these last couple of days, um, and you know, the fact that that they're going to open uh, camps uh, next week. I, I mean, that's great, but now we have to kind of see where the virus is going to take us. Um, you know, we'll see when these players return to their camps and they all get tested and we'll see, you know, what the numbers show. Um, because I, I still think there's a lot of uncertainty before they actually start playing games a month from now. No doubt. We're speaking again with Peter Body of the New York Post. His new book is The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the New York Yankees. Um, and of course, I, I've always wondered from the perspective of somebody who who covers baseball the way you cover it, Every day, it's a 365-day-a-year job now in a way that it wasn't generations ago. But so much about what uh, you've had to cover over the last 20 years is baseball, but not on the field stuff. Um, You know, whether it's the steroids era and how we assess the achievements of those who were playing in that era, or now what we're talking about, you know, as a nation and a world, of course, you have to deal with in the context of baseball, the pandemic. this isn't necessarily the stuff you signed up for when you wanted to be a baseball writer, was it? Well, absolutely. And, you know, I covered the Yankees in the late 90s when George Steinbrenner was still kind of in his in his heyday. And I always felt like sometimes covering the games, even then, um, were secondary to some of the periphery stuff going on, you know, going on with Steinbrenner and with the Yankees. Um, so I feel like that prepared you for some of it. But, but that's really kind of grown exponentially as you said the last 20 years um once the once the steroid era hit um you know peds were were uh, and i was at the daily news at the time and it was a it was such a big part of what we were covering and and it really kind of drove our coverage um for a long time uh so uh, you know you had to you kind of had to adapt to that and you're right uh, sometimes the the games actually seem secondary to the other stuff that's going on and now with the pandemic i mean whatever whatever comes of this 60 game season if it's played or not i mean i i feel like there's so much other there are so much other important things to to write about and to cover in relation to you know the way baseball is being covered that um you know it's definitely it's definitely much different than it was uh you know decades ago we're speaking with peter body the longtime baseball writer based in new york and it feels weird calling you one of the veterans and one of the longtime guys, which of course you are, because I feel like we're like the same age and we've seen each other in press boxes for like 30 years and we can't be the old guys yet. But I think, um, that's where, that's, that's, I guess it's not a sad thing. It's a good thing. That's where we are now. The book is The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the New York Yankees. And I have to say, um, you you get to write this book, and it's a book in a series, including some other teams. It's a little easier writing this book than, say, the same book about I don't know. With all due respect, the Texas Rangers, right, Peter? It's it's an opposite uh, challenge, you know, for each side. You know, teams like like you mentioned the Rangers, or you know, like uh, a team like the Minnesota Twins, or something like that. You might have to stretch out to find fifty 
moments <laughs> and figures right. that deserve their own chapters. With the Yankees, the, the, the daunting challenge was narrowing it down to 50. Um, you know, they, they won 27 championships, dozens of Hall of Famers, numerous incredible moments, you know, that really transcend the game. Um, so that was the that was the hardest part. What I decided to do when I when I took on the challenge of doing the book was um, I, the only way I could do it and, and cover as much ground as possible was I had to kind of put all of, say, Babe Ruth's moments into one chapter. And that's chapter one. You know, Derek Jeter, I probably could have written 10 different chapters on, but I, I put all of his moments into one chapter. And even some of the World Series years, I had to combine them. Uh, into into their own chapters, you know, the four in a row, the four titles in a row from 1936 to 1939, the five titles in a row from 1949 to 1953. Like I made those each an individual chapter instead of I couldn't do I couldn't do a separate chapter on all 27 championships, obviously. This, of course, is what we call an embarrassment of riches. It would be hard finding 50 of the greatest moments in players in Yankees history. I mean, there's so many guys. Um, one of my favorite uh, stats regarding um putting in perspective the greatness of the Yankees. I think there, there are now, what is it? There are going to be nine guys in the Hall of Fame who played every single game of their careers for the Yankees. I mean, which is just, you know, it, it never, and so you got, you got those guys. You got Gehrig, Ford, DiMaggio, Mantle, Coombs, Dickey, Rizzuto, uh, Rivera, and Jeter. Okay. And then you've got two guys, Yogi Berra, played four games for another team, the Mets. And even better than that, Lefty Gomez, most people are aware, played one game for the Washington Senators. <laughs> that, that was that was it. It's crazy. I mean, obviously in those days there wasn't as much movement. But nowadays the fact that Jeter and Mariano played their whole careers with the Yankees is – is I think significant because you don't see that as much. You know, you you have so many players now going into the Hall of Fame that have played for six, seven teams, and you have to decide what hat to put on them. You know, on their plaque and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Yankee history is is filled with guys who were career Yankees, and you know, and some of the biggest names. I mean, when you think of like you know, people. I always I always say that you know, people talk about the Mount Rushmore of the Yankees, and it's always obviously Ruth. Gehrig, DiMaggio, and Mantle, but the Yankees' second Mount Rushmore, if you, if you will, of Berra, Berra, Whitey, Jeter, and Rivera would beat most teams. You know, would be, would be a better Mount Rushmore than than most teams in baseball. Let me ask you. And we're speaking with Peter Body of the New York Post. His new book is "The Big Fifty: The Men and Moments That Made the New York Yankees." Um, and you know, we know the big names. We talked about the big names. Who do you consider? And, it, and nobody ever thinks of Yankees as being underrated because the Yankees get so much attention, et cetera. But who is the most underrated of the great Yankees or just the most underrated Yankee? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I, there are Hall of Famers um, that I didn't even, you know, that I, that I didn't even give, uh, you know, uh, give chapters to in my book. You know, guys like Earl Combs and Joe Gordon and, and Lefty Gomez, as you mentioned, and you know, even more recent guys like Mike Mussina. Um, you know, there are guys who, um, you know, who I didn't even get to really in the book. I mentioned them in, I obviously, co you know, covered them in chapters about certain World Series years or whatever, but there were so many great players in Yankee history. I, I think one of the more underrated guys from the recent years is Bernie Williams. Um, I, I always felt like he, I always felt like he deserved to be on that 
you know, on that masthead of the core four, I actually always thought it should have been five guys. I know Bernie got there earlier than the other four and, and left earlier and wasn't on the 2009 World Series team. But I always felt like without Bernie, you know, Bernie was really the test case for the Yankees holding on to their prospects and letting them kind of flourish and, and go through the growing pains, you know, at the, you know, in the Bronx. Um, you know, we, we all know the, the litany of names in the 80s, right, that George Steinbrenner traded away, uh, you know, the Drabecks and the Fred McGriffs and, and Jay Buhner and, and on and on. Um, and Bernie was really the first guy that Stick Michael, um, while George was on suspension, you know, kind of really made it, went to bat for and, and, and him and, you know, Stick and Buck Showalter, who was a manager at the time, really kind of let Bernie grow into that, you know, into that role uh, as as one of the great, you know, really one of the great center fielders in Yankee history. I mean, obviously he's not Mantle or DiMaggio, but I think he's probably, he might be, you know, right behind those guys. And he's as important to that Yankee dynasty in the nineties as any of the, any of the core four, or any of the other kind of veteran players on those teams. And I, I feel like, I always felt like he should be listed among, you know, they should have named, named it the fab five or something else, uh, you know, but, but I felt like that Bernie should always be listed alongside those other four guys. Well, in the absence of actual Yankees games, at least for the moment, uh, there's nothing better than digging into Yankees history, Peter bodies, the big 50, the men and moments that made the New York Yankees, the perfect antidote to your lack of baseball blues. Peter, thank you so much for being with us here on the show. Thanks, Jeremy. I really appreciate you having me on. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. This week on ESPN.com, an opinion piece was posted, co-authored by Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut and Golden State forward Draymond Green. Together, they are demanding change in the world of college sports. More rights and more money for athletes. The piece is titled, College Sports Can't Return to Business as Usual. For Outside the Lines, I spoke to Chris Murphy and Draymond Green, and here's a portion of our conversation. Draymond, uh, you and Senator Murphy have both been working on this issue for a while, independent of each other. How did you decide to work together? Uh, so last year when I did the Washington Post story, um, Senator Murphy tweeted in support of the story and kind of I uh, told everyone to go read it, and I reached. I sent the note to his office just to say thank you um, for supporting the story, for you know getting it out there. Obviously, I think when you, you know, it, we're in two completely different fields, and so our audiences are completely different. And when he put that out there to his audience, you know, I just wanted to reach out and and you know show my gratitude. And you know, we connected then, and you know, share you know the way we both felt on the issue. And it seemed to align. And, you know, we thought that, you know, if we come together and, as I said before, uh, bring two audiences together, we can really push for some change. And obviously Senator Murphy is in a position to where he's working every day on the ground trying to make laws and create new policies. And for me, um, it was just different from a standpoint of I am one of those college athletes that or were that were taken advantage of. And, and I think it's time for change. And, Senator Murphy has done way more on this issue than I have, and I just wanted to align with someone who has great intentions and really trying to push this thing forward. Senator Murphy, you write in this piece with Draymond that in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd and against the backdrop of the pandemic, the issue of um, the exploitation and the mistreatment of college athletes should be addressed now, that this is the right time. What makes this the right time? 
Well, listen, I'm really thrilled to be working with Draymond. It's a dream come true. I'm a huge sports fan. And, you know, I think it is a unique partnership because uh, I can speak as a policymaker and a sports fan. And Draymond, of course, can speak as someone who has lived this experience as a college athlete. Um, Listen, I believe, and I think Draymond agrees, that this is a civil rights issue. Uh, that when you have a system whereby, especially in the big-time college sports, football and basketball, the majority of the athletes, the workers, uh, are of color, are mostly African-American, and the majority of the adults that are making millions of dollars off off their labor, whether it be the coaches, the athletic directors, the sneaker company CEOs, the television executives are white, um, you have to view it through that civil rights lens. Uh, And it's just time for us to reckon with that. COVID also reminds us of, you know, how um, much their health is in jeopardy and the worry being that the bottom line of these schools is prompting, you know, teams to get back into the arena before it's safe for kids. So, you know, both in the context of the health conversation that we're having and the civil rights conversation, it seems like we've got to elevate the stories of college athletes and try to demand for change, as as Draymond and I have both been doing for a number of years. Draymond, you've spoken glowingly of your experience at Michigan State. You've donated more than $3 million to the school. Uh, Clearly, you're someone who thinks um, there's some positive things about college sports, but how do you think they must change in this regard? I think they, you know, I think, as you said, I am, you know, a, a big advocate for college sports. I am a huge advocate for Michigan State in particular. Um, you know, as an alumni uh, who, you know, I, I graduated from there. I feel like when I went to Michigan State, I learned so much and I became a man at that school. But, you know, when you look at the system, it, it is, you, you can't really find me any other system where you have workers and they are creating $14 billion of value, and they get zero. And, you know, it's obviously, I think when you look in, at life as a whole, everyone struggles with change. And so, you know, when, when you've operated a certain way for so long, I understand struggling with change. But and in the same token, you have to understand that time's and you have to understand in, in the NCAA, when I say you, that times are different and it's time for change. You have students, and as I said, I've been one of them before, that can't afford meals. You're, you, you're on TV every night and everyone think you're this celebrity and everyone thinks when you're on TV that that comes with money and your mom is at, at home struggling to pay the water bill, to pay the cable bill, if that's even a thing because – if you can't pay the water bill, cable is so far gone or to pay the light bill, to pay rent. And you're on TV every day and everyone think you're doing so well. And you can't even go get a job because the schedule as a student athlete, they say, but probably more as an athlete slash student doesn't allow you to even go get a job making $10 an hour, $15 an hour. And and I just think it's it's really time to change that. Stop taking advantage of these kids. Stop telling them that you're, you're being compensated by a scholarship that the school, quite frankly, doesn't even pay for. You know, I, it's it's really time for that to change and, and for these student athletes to have an opportunity to capitalize on the money that they're bringing into these universities. 
And Senator Murphy, we've certainly seen movement in the last few years in terms of not only public opinion, uh, but uh, public policy um, towards the empowerment of athletes. We've seen it uh, at the state level, in red states, in blue states. We've seen you working in a bipartisan way with your colleagues, including Senator Romney, who was on the show a few months ago talking about this issue. What is the role specifically of the federal government here? Well, as, as Draymond noted, you know, every sports fan has noticed um, how much bigger the industry of college sports has gotten. It is a $14 billion industry. And so there's no argument any longer that there's not an ability uh, to compensate at some basic level students who are going out and creating this value. Right now, um, there's an opportunity for Congress to weigh in on behalf of athletes because a lot of state legislatures aren't waiting. Um, Florida and California have both said that athletes that are playing for big college programs now can make money off of their name, image, and likeness endorsement deals. Um, it probably doesn't make sense to have you know 50 different laws with 50 different sets of rules. So that's an opportunity for Congress to step in and provide some national rights to student athletes. Now, I think our interest is that not stopping just endorsement deals. $14 billion is enough so that you know, at least at the big time college programs, uh, we should be able to get more compensation uh, to a broader range of students. But these state initiatives um, provide an opportunity for Congress to step up and do something here. And as you mentioned, there's just public support for it now in a way that there didn't used to be, because I'm one of those college sports fans who looks at the industry today and says, man, it just doesn't look that much different any longer. College football to pro football, college basketball doesn't look that different than, 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 than pro basketball. And so why are we treating the players so differently? What are the other uh, longer-term changes you are hoping um, to see uh, with the NCAA rulebook, Senator Murphy? Yeah, well, I'll you know, let Draymond speak on this as well. I mean, listen, for me, the first step is making sure that if we're going to allow for students to make money off endorsement deals, the rules aren't written by the NCAA. So far, the NCAA hasn't shown, you know, a lot of concern for putting the interest of students first. So I want to make sure that if we're going to do endorsement deals, that they be deals that are good for kids. Second, I think we should be looking at a compensation system for all student athletes at the big time universities playing the big time sports. Uh, because, you know, maybe the offensive lineman for Auburn, you know, isn't a household name. Maybe he doesn't get the endorsement deal, but his labor is just as important to that team doing well and filling the stadium as is the running back or the quarterback. So I think we've got to look at a broader system of compensation. And then lastly, we just got to make sure that safety is first. I mean, every single college athlete should have their health care covered by the university. No player, especially in football, should be sent back out there if they have any sign of a head injury. And schools aren't doing the right thing by students' health right now. So, you know, those are three things that I think we need to look at. Uh, and frankly, states are going to step up and do this on their own. So if the federal government doesn't do this, then you're going to have 50 different state laws all conflicting with each other. It's going to make college sports kind of a mess to administer. So it's better off that we do that. We make these changes, prompt these changes at a federal level. Draymond, we've seen your sport. We've seen young athletes say, maybe I don't need the college experience. Finding ways around um, playing in the NCAA uh, and, and getting to the NBA anyway. If college sports don't change if they don't make it possible for athletes to be better compensated 
if, uh, if the system as we now know it doesn't change, what are the future of college sports, big-time college sports? I think when, when you talk about college sports at a high level, I think it's dead if they don't make these changes. And, you know, I commend Commissioner Silver, um, Michelle Roberts on the job that they're doing to create these avenues for these student athletes. Um, you know, they're creating avenues to where they don't have to go to college. And, you know, I, you know, I give, I give, give credit to these student athletes for taking that leap of faith and, you know, believing in their own talents and doing what's best for their families. But, you know, it's, 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 it's sad that, you know, when you look at some of the top athletes in the country, starting to to make different moves as opposed to going to college. And yet we still have the NCAA sitting there capitalizing on – they know they can still capitalize on an athlete that's that may not be as good. You know, I, I, I speak when, – when I, I love Coach Izzo dearly. And I think one thing about Coach Izzo is he can do a lot with less. And when I say a lot with less, the talent that Coach Izzo bring in may not be to the level of Duke or may not be to the level of Kentucky, but yet he's in the Final Four once every two or three years. And so he can do a lot with less. And because of that, the NCAA is still able to capitalize at a high level on athletes that may not be quite your Zion Williamson or, you know, the athletes that are able to make that jump to the NBA right away. And so they're still able to capitalize, and they continue to do that. But if they don't, this the – College athlete, college athletics will continue to die as it's doing now. I don't even watch it much anymore because the, the, it's just not good, great basketball anymore. And it'll continue to get worse and worse if they don't create these changes that, that are in, in line and need to be created. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. A baseball season with all its ups and downs and its myriad characters is often a great way to look at not just the world of baseball in a particular moment of time, but at the country at large, such is the case with a new book by our next guest. The book is titled The Called Shot, Babe Ruth, the Chicago Cubs in the Unforgettable Major League Baseball Season of 1932, and as promised the author, Thomas Wolfe. Not that Thomas Wolf joins us now. Tom, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you, Jeremy. I'm delighted to be here. It's quite a heavy literary burden to be put upon by your parents. <laughs> when when they give you that name, when you already have that surname, you had no choice except to become a writer, I suppose. I guess that that's true. And I think it came from my mother, actually, who lived in Black Mountain, North Carolina, during World War II, and interviewed Julia Wolf, who was Thomas Wolf's um, mother. So I kind of think she had the name uh, Thomas Wolf um, in her mind at that point. Well, I promise not to make any any bad jokes about going home again as as we talk <laughs> about the 1932 baseball season. And the, there is um there is so much going on as we said in baseball every year, but that year there's so much going on of course in the country. Can you can you set the stage for us 1932 in America? Sure. The the present has been kind of an odd way of reminding us of the past, and there's certain correlations between 2020 and 1932. 1932 is notable because it was in the midst of the Great Depression, 
prohibition was ending and had been a failed experiment. Uh, there were demonstrations in the streets of the nation's capital. Uh, World War One veterans were demonstrating in the hope that they could get paid their World War I um, bonuses. And there was certainly um, economic depression throughout the country, homeless, um, homeless people, and um, the whole country really was experiencing a year of social unrest, fear, suffering, uncertainty, and it was a presidential election year, so politics was um, part of the story in 1932 as well. We're speaking with Thomas Wolfe about his new book, The Called Shot, Babe Ruth, The Chicago Cubs, and the unforgettable Major League Baseball season of 1932. And I would venture to say, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but this this genre, taking one season and really dissecting it, was was pioneered by the late, great David Halberstam. Um, and now we've seen, uh, we, we've seen the, the methodology applied to a number of different seasons. Uh, why, why for you of all <laughs> major league baseball goes back to 1869 or 1876, however you want to count it, right? Why 1932? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and you're right about uh, David Halberson's book, Summer of 49, how that kind of launched the genre. And there are a whole bunch of really good books that have been written about single seasons. For, for me, 1932 um, was a kind of pivotal moment, of course, in American history. And what I liked about it in terms of baseball was it seemed to me it combined the three elements that are necessary for a great baseball season. Terrific players, Hall of Fame players on the field competing against each other, great pennant races, and then memorable or iconic moments during that particular season. The other thing that drew me to the story was that I had heard a, a story and researched a story about a prison warden who had taken one of his inmates to the World Series games in Chicago in 1932, and I thought that was kind of a neat story of of compassion, a very compassionate warden uh, and his prisoner who had bonded over the Chicago Cubs. But then as I looked more into the 1932 season, I realized that it had uh, had a shortstop of the Cubs who was shot by his girlfriend, had a fight between an umpire and the Chicago White Sox, and of course ended with Babe Ruth's um, called shot in what was Ruth's last World Series. So there were just so many good baseball elements in on the field and in the culture that uh, attracted me. I thought nobody had written about 32 yet. Somebody was going to, and I wanted to be the first. We're not going to have time here uh, in the time allotted to us now to, to get into um, all the elements that make 1932 special, but we're talking to Tom Wolf about his new book, The Called Shot, Babe Ruth, The Chicago Cubs, and the unforgettable Major League Baseball season of 1932. The Called Shot itself in the World Series, as you said, Babe Ruth's last World Series, he would play two more full seasons and part of a season in 1935 for the Boston Braves. Um, it is uh, it is a moment, of course, uh, here we go with the cliches again, shrouded in myth, obscured uh, by the fog of time. Um, I could go on if you wanted me to, but I, but I won't, Tom. Uh, when you dig deep, though, into the contemporaneous sources, as I know you did, um, where do uh, the myth and the reality intersect, and where do they diverge? The issue really is how one interprets the phrase called shot. If one takes it sort of in the terms that are used in billiards, 
It means pointing exactly to where you're going to send the ball. Um, that, I think, is probably myth. I think Ruth never really claimed that. And although he did a lot of finger-pointing and arm-waving and bat-waving, um, some of it directed towards the outfield, I don't think he actually pointed to where the ball landed up. But the other part of what a called shot is, is that I think Ruth did predict that he was going to hit a home run, and he predicted the pitch on which he was going to hit it. Um, during his at-bat, lemons were being thrown at him from, from the stands by Cub fans. Cubs in the dugout were taunting him. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of trash talking going on. The count went to two and two. Ruth didn't offer at the first four pitches. He took four pitches and held up one finger, indicating he had one more to hit it. Uh, and then, according to the home plate umpire, Ruth turned to him and said, if Ruth puts the next pitch in here, Charlie Ruth, who was pitching for the Cubs, if Ruth puts the next pitch in here, I'm going to hit it out. So I think by, demonstrate, by demonstrating um, his intention, he actually did hit a called shot. He called the pitch, and he hit that particular pitch um, out of Wrigley Field. In fact, it went over the scoreboard in right center, longest home run to date that has been hit at, at Wrigley Field. So um, we can debate whether or not he pointed in the right direction uh, where the ball went, but um, to me, he predicted the home run, and he hit it. Ultimately, Tom, was 1932 a year that signified the end of something or the beginning? That's a difficult question. I think for Ruth, it was the beginning of the end of his career as a player in terms of being a dominant player. Uh, as you've noted, uh, his, his statistics and performance on the field tailed off in 1933 um, and 34, and then uh, he had a very abbreviated season, I think only 70-some at-bats with the Boston Braves in 1935. So it was kind of the end of the Ruth era with the Yankees, but it was very quickly replaced by the Gehrig DiMaggio era, which led into the DiMaggio mantle era. So I think there's a kind of continuity, at least in Yankee history, that links Ruth, the end of Ruth's career with the beginning of a kind of dominance that the Yankees had through the forties and fifties. Um, Ruth as a figure, I think, stood above everybody else in the game in 1932, and his aura, I think, continues to today. I mean, we're 88 years past 1932, and we're still talking about Babe Ruth, and 100 years from now, somebody will be talking about the called shot. There's no doubt about that. Thomas <laughs> Wolfe's new book is The Called Shot, Babe Ruth, the Chicago Cubs, and the unforgettable Major League Baseball season of 1932. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. I've enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time. Geico knows there are many reasons why you ride. From the thrill of the revving engine and pure adrenaline of flying down the highway to the confidence of knowing that Geico always has your back with 24-7 access to claim service. But Ari Snyder has one reason in particular. I had extremely large upper arms. They won't even fit into most shirts. Thankfully, biking really embraces vest culture, so I feel accepted. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.